0: Hello and welcome to Books and Badgers. Uh, This is Season 4, Episode 2, and we are talking about Mariel of Redwall, Book 2, The Strange Forest. We gotta find an easier way to talk about the the title of this podcast. Uh, We got some long, long book titles coming up, but uh, this is really exciting because this is the continuation of our um, uh, discussion of Mariel of Redwall um you know me as your host colin and with me as always is host number two sometimes host number one i kind of we, we kind of flip it up sometimes uh trevor trevor how you doing i'm doing great how are you i'm doing good i always try to make sure that when we post you know the details for the episode or social media that i'm never putting my name first
1: <laughs> <That's> <laughs> switching up,
0: uh to give it to give equal credit um but i'm i'm really excited to talk about this relatively short book 2 what do you think
1: this feels like a book 3 in <laughs> like in terms of length yeah. i feel like in the past we've had a much longer act 2 uh so it's kind of refreshing to come into a shorter act 2 yeah i agree and it's kind of funny cuz with book 1
0: i felt like it was a marathon to get through and so when <laughs> i was preparing for this i had to like I was kind of surprised. I was pleasantly surprised that uh, I was able to read it so fast. I was like, oh, dang, I got all this free time to read part three.
1: three." (laughs) Part three is a little bit longer, um, but I was not uh, hurt at all in the last week by the fact that book two was quite a bit shorter. Yeah, this might be,
0: probably not, but this might be the first episode under... What? an hour and a half? We'll see. We'll <laughs> see how long one it be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I got to always open up the question to you and ask you what you've been reading. What's some of the, the cool things that you've got on your,
1: your nightstand or in your house? A whole ton of stuff I'm always reading. I just finished a book by L.P. Hernandez that is coming out February 13th called In the Valley of the Headless Men. It's a novella about a man who travels out into the Nahanni Valley in Canada in search of his father. And along the way, he takes his brother and one of his exes and really just kind of gets lost in this very strange, supernaturally uh, active uh, valley of, of Canada and starts asking a lot of Very interesting questions about the decisions that he's made throughout his life. It is a really, really cool novella. I absolutely loved it. And I think that it delivered that really satisfying emotional punch for me that I really adore out of fiction
0: cool that sounds awesome i'm looking forward to that uh i i i have an incredibly large tbr and i feel like now that we're past kind of the end of the year break uh my reading has really slowed down but i am continuing on with the game of thrones or a game of thrones uh with book two the clash of kings and um it's great i really enjoy it a lot this is a series that um is a is a lot more digestible than i thought like i i've I've always kind of thought that George R.R. R. Martin was um, uh, a contemporary fantasy writer, but I always kind of thought that he, like a lot of contemporary fantasy writers, uh, can be a little long winded in their storytelling, <laughs> but he's actually pretty concise. I, I really enjoy how he crafts his story, and um, I think I said this in the last podcast, but you can see all the mimics like you can kind of see how he popularized mm. things like the point of view chapters uh the different character chapters and then having such a strong character driven uh story a lot of people wanted to emulate that so um yeah. it's really good though i can't i can't praise it enough i'm really enjoying it getting through it pretty fast um and then i'm also reading a book called the design of of uh sorry Uh, Designed for a Better World by Don Norman. This is actually a book I'm reading for work. And it's incredibly fascinating because it's uh, basically this old guy, Don Norman. He's kind of like, I don't know, the founder of a lot of uh, user experience principles. And uh, he's an old guy now, and he's writing this book about how the world could be designed better and all the things that are really poorly Mm -hmm. designed, for example, like our calendar, uh, or the calendar that we use in the northwest and uh, a lot of um uh, <laughs> zones areas use um mm-hmm. but it's really interesting to kind of hear him break down some of the really poorly designed things that we deal with every single day um so i'm i'm especially excited to talk about it for work because it craps pretty hard on a nine to five and uh I work a nine to five so it's gonna be interesting to hear how <laughs> how that's going of addressed but yeah. Super excited to to get into that one. So trying to balance out the fantasy reading, the, the red wall explorations that we're able to do um, with some more practical reading this year. So it's been good so yeah. far. Cool. Well, we're not here to talk about designing a better world. We're not here to talk <laughs> about uh, horror. We are here to talk about red wall. And let me tell you, we are going to be going into the strange forest with book two. A lot of strangeness going on
1: in this world. Pretty order. strange. Pretty
0: <laughs> weird. All right. You ready to get to it? Let's go. Let's
1: do it. In chapter 19 gray patch makes his first move against redwall on a foggy morning although his ruse to hide his numbers in fog is sound he is spotted by a redwall scout commissioned by mother Mellis to find dandan and durry who are missing from the abbey gray patch makes an attempt to enter redwall under the guise of being stranded But when he's called out on his bluff, Greypatch raises arms against the Abbey and is quickly deterred. After his gambit fails, his raiding party is split on whose leadership to follow. Greypatch or his rival, Big Fang? Meanwhile, Colonel Clary and his long patrol discover the Dark Queen, abandoned deep upriver, and decide to dismantle the ship okay so we're starting off book two
0: with the classic red ball uh get into red ball strategy which is hey (laughs) let's just pretend that we need help and uh maybe someone will help us you know obviously that worked so well for clooney (laughs) um it actually worked really well for um for slagar so you know (laughs) you were kind of at 50-50 with this attempt, but we quickly learned this attempt did not work at all. I actually found this pretty comical. I was kind of chuckling to myself this whole uh this whole chapter because of just how this plan falls a quick apart so quickly. Uh, and we get a, a brief introduction into I think is one of the main uh dry character development kind of drives for Grey Patch, which is the politics of who's in command right
1: yeah i love this kind of uh, mini rivalry between gray patch and big fang and this this plan just goes to crap very quickly it's Um, so fast but yeah part of it is because i think gray patch really always underestimates the red wallers and is not really quite aware of all of the knowledge that they have of what's going on and so as soon as his ruse kind of starts to fall apart uh the Redwallers start launching missiles into the fog around the ditch and that's when big fang ironically is the one who kind of gives it away that um they're actually waiting for the the gates to open so they can rush Redwall and and break in and so i think it's really interesting that big fang who is kind of the the ostensible reason why this ploy fails uh at least in gray patch's eyes um also seems to think that he can rival gray patch like he can take charge and the fracturing of gray patch's unit uh is just a classic villain blunder right like they classic They always seem to not really trust one another or really uh, confide in each other's strengths, um, which is the exact opposite of what all of the Redwall heroes do. It's always going to be the thing, I think, that drives so many of these characters to failure
0: yeah it's it's like you said it's just so funny how it falls apart so fast like there there really isn't even a um entertainment of this uh it the the ploy unravels so quickly the Redwallers route them out of the cap the (laughs) out of the abbey essentially well the, the abbey gates and then as they reconvene in mossflower um this mutiny starts to form and i think mm-hmm. it's really funny cuz they they're also like well we'll just go back to the dark queen like big thing is like that's we're we're really not land guys we're sea guys so let's go back <laughs> on our ship uh we're pirates at heart you know kind of a thing and it's funny because as that's happening we see that <laughs> the long patrol is just like thrown the steering wheel into the the forest <laughs> and taken off the rudder like it's very funny
1: yeah. I love the kind of classic irony. Um and it it starts to paint a picture that may not work out so well for Grey Patch. As much as I enjoy Grey Patch as kind of this secondary villain, uh it's it's kind of funny how this whole group seems to be pushed in the direction of invading Redwall uh, because Big Fang kind of realizes eh, maybe that's not for us. Let's just go back. And uh, and there really is no future option because uh, their boat is in pieces now.
0: Yeah, the, the Dark Queen has been stranded. So,
1: it, yeah, I like that you, you point out the irony there. Yeah. Well, in Chapter 20, Mariel and company continue their journey to Terramort, but are struck by lethargy as they catch a perfumed scent on the wind. When they wake up from being drugged, they discover they are captives of the strange Flitch-Eye tribe who are mask-wearing savages who use a special herb to invoke drowsiness. Mariel stages a breakout from their captivity, and together the travelers work to summon help by beating a hollow log and shouting their alliance with Redwall. Meanwhile, Ronblade has dispatched all of the long patrol from Salam in order to stage battle against Orgai, who has crashed the wave blade against a reef near the Fire Mountain. Still further into Ma- Mossflower, Colonel Clary clashes with Big Fang's party in a quick skirmish that leaves Colonel Clary wounded. Big Fang is ousted from leadership by his subordinate Kaibo, who demands that they go back to Redwall. At the Abbey, the young Otter twins keep watch over the ramparts. Oh man,
0: so much to uncover in this chapter. It's kind of packed with with all the things to... Lots of notes on this one. Um, The first thing that I wanted to kind of point out was, did Jake's just uh, watch uh, Wizard of Oz prior to writing this chapter? (laughs) the
1: poppies, yeah. (laughs) Yes,
0: it's so reminiscent of that. I I couldn't help but remark on just how similar that is. Um, But I was genuinely kind of chilled by uh, the flitch-eyed tribe. I think that's how you Mm -hmm. say it. They gave me a lot of uh very similar feelings to the painted ones from yes. um Adam Yeah, very creepy. Um, We actually don't get who they are until a little later on. So Mm -hmm. I was reading this this whole time and having, you know, Elden Ring style uh, (laughs) creatures in my my mind's eye for this because I just couldn't figure out what they were because it kind of talks about them like slithering on the ground. They're draped in this uh, this fragrance. They're draped in. um, I think it's like some some cloths or leaves Mm -hmm. with cloths. So uh, very their behavior is very unlike anything that we've seen you know, I, I guess, except for the painted ones. So I really like that Jake's is kind of bringing that back a little bit in this book, um, because that's something that I really loved about Matameo. So that's definitely a highlight for me.
1: Yeah, I I liked the flitch eye um, in terms of Mariel's travels. Anyway, I felt like the flitch eye were pretty fun. Um, I'm not as into Mariel's travels as much as I was with Martin and his travels. So even yeah. though I think we've got, you know, some more diversity here, and it's certainly different from what Martin was doing and different from what Matthias was doing in Matameo, I I can't summon a whole lot of enthusiasm for Mariel's journey, um, because I just don't feel as though it's diverse enough. Um You know, again, it seems like we're hitting the same tropes over and over in Muriel's journey. Um, But I will tell you what I did like a whole lot of was Ron Blade and his kind of uh, epic uh, gearing up for a confrontation with Orgai. I thought that was incredibly exciting. You get a badger in full armor, and I am. I am there for it. Um, I felt like that was just a very cinematic kind of experience um, with Ron Blade, you know, kind of preparing himself for this upcoming conflict. And then we're thrown into this incredible fight between the long patrol and big fangs um, group, which is uh, only kind of a, a short conflict, like a short skirmish, but really impactful. And I felt like the stakes were really high for Colonel Clary and crew um in what shakes out to be just a, a, a quick little skirmish.
0: Yeah. On uh, a note on the skirmish, I thought his wound was pretty bad, too, because he gets pierced through the paw and he actually gets pierced to the to the bow. It kind of pierces through his paw to the bow, which I thought was pretty intense. Uh, but in typical hair fashion i love that he makes a quip about it saying mm-hmm. you know i think he meant to give me a haircut <laughs> but he you gotta miss which i just love that we still get that like those great uh quips from from clary with that uh going sure. back to the ron blade stuff this uh, to me helps to kind of heighten. Um, What we saw with Boar the Fighter in um, Mossflower, Mm -hmm. you know how he prepares in a very similar way. And there's this kind of beckoning and call to the shores of Salamidastrin to be able to, you know, take take up the blade to fight the invading sea rats. This is so cool to see. And um, I'm with you. The Mariel stuff is kind of starting to weigh on me a little bit especially because all their actions seemed predetermined because of the um lore the 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 uh what is it the poem or the song that they have and that's definitely starting to wear on me like <laughs> it's just like okay we this is so convenient that they know to hit you know kind of bang on the hollow log and call for help because of that poem so um yeah i'm with you on that it's it's definitely i'm way more into the badger stuff i mean obviously this is the books and badgers podcast we named it after our, our favorite stuff. Uh mm. but yeah, it's it's so cool to see this um this kind of I don't know what you call it, this call of duty for <laughs> the Badger Lords to come out to shore. It's it's super yeah. epic.
1: I think I this is a question that I want to pose to the group when we do our big review, but I feel like there are kind of two ways that prophecy is handled in this book and one is really well done and the other is not very interesting and i think that is the the kind of dichotomy between the uh prophecy of the badger lords and the prophecy of the bell specifically um and then it's juxtaposed with this prophecy of the Uh, travel itinerary for Mariel and her group. And I feel like the, the Badger Lord stuff for me works so well because it is kind of hinting at a payoff that is going to come much later in the book. Whereas the travel itinerary for Mariel just feels like it's a big checklist. And therefore it's like, there's not a whole lot of tension there because i don't feel like the riddle is a payoff so much as it is just a description. Does that kind of make sense? Absolutely. And i i uh,
0: what i'm trying to say is i think that because we've had these riddles for three books now um yeah. that the payoff is is way less impactful. But i'm with you with with the lore with the um with the bell and what we're learning with the badger lords. I think that that has to do with the Redwall series overall and not necessarily just for the quest, which happens in every book. I mean, that's just one of the things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I uh, all of this is to say when I read chapter 20, I was like, what a cinematic very chapter This is especially the the Ron blade stuff. I felt like even though I know we're not going to get to see Ron blade in action until much later. Um, it it kind of doesn't matter because it's setting up for us exactly the kind of conflict that I think is cyclical to the the nature of Badger Lords and Salamandarion. He is echoing the same kind of journey as Boar, and we know that he's a descendant of Boar. So, um, right. to kind of you know see all of this occurring and and happening and see how Ron Blade handles it. It's just really exciting to me. Well, in chapter 21, Mariel and her friends are saved from the flitch-eye by a barn owl named Stonehead McGurney, who offers the travelers a safe respite with his family. Meanwhile, Gabool's insanity deepens as he dreams of future destruction at the hands of an armored badger lord oh boy i wonder who that's gonna be Uh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) i have really no notes on this except that stonehead mcgurney comes in like a wwe pro wrestler into this (laughs) fight like it is we've seen owls intervene with sir harry the muse and madameo but my gosh this the way that he just literally just stone-cold steve steve austin comes in is just <laughs> ridiculous.
1: i imagine uh <laughs> i imagine the announcer for john cena being watch out watch out watch out <laughs> yeah absolutely it's it's
0: so uh, uh, i don't know i did you did you find this like heroic or did you find this funny
1: oh i found uh, it absolutely hilarious okay um, okay <laughs> as I odd can- as as it is to say, you know, how much I I kind of feel like I don't love the Mariel journey. I love the characters that show up yeah. on her journey so much more than I care about like Danden. Um I I kind of can't stand Danden. Uh I like Dunny. I think he's kind of a I think he's kind of a fun character. Um especially the way he keeps thinking about or not Dunny, Dury. Um the way he keeps thinking about his uncle Gabe and mm-hmm. and like, like everything is just like oh my uncle Gabe won't won't believe any of the things that happened on this trip. Um I find that to be quite charming. Uh but Stonehead McGurney is definitely one of those like weird side characters that I'm just like I could read a whole bunch more of his stuff. The country bumpkin who just likes wrestling these flitch eye. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I want to get him and uh, who was the hedgehog with the all the daughters that fought. Um, oh, yeah, I know from Madame Mayo. I forget his name, but yeah, I'll have to put in post. I keep we keep forgetting names and then I have to look it up and have the AI voice post it in post. So the name you are looking for is Jaba. Thanks. <laughs> thanks. AI voice for getting this one. too. <laughs> Uh but yeah I want to get them all in a pro league together you know I want to <laughs> do circuit <surfing.
1: laughs> <laughs> Was it Jabez that? But, yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. I think yeah. it's Jabez. Yeah, I do feel <laughs> I feel like they would be kindred spirits for sure.
0: For sure. Yeah. And you know, you know, my boy Basil's going to be in there. Basil and Cheek, they're going to. Oh, yeah, are going to be absolutely. part of that circuit. I will say it's cool to see who, that the Flitch eyes are weasels, right? So we learned that yes. they're not these uh, these terrifying um, unknown creatures they're they're weasels who are disguising themselves in this um in this drowsiness Uh, what is the plant is it a poppy it is poppy
1: right it's it's yeah some kind of um herb that they burn and it makes you go to sleep so yeah uh, could be that that could be marijuana which would be (laughs) hilarious (laughs) Uh, oh i would that would be absolutely hilarious if that's uh what jakes
0: is going for i doubt it is he doesn't highly doubt it doesn't seem like the kind of guy but
1: uh yeah those were literally the only notes i had on this very short chapter i think this is the is this not the chapter two where gabool introduces us to his weird little pet yes it is it absolutely is um is it scroblag i think that's right yes scroblag I didn't write him down in my notes, but I do think that it's an important plot point that we do want to keep our eyes on. Um, I know that it doesn't really explain what Scroblag is. I'm. It's so funny that you brought this
0: up because I forgot about it so quickly. And I don't think we see him again in this uh, in this book,
1: right? No, not in book two. This He's, is a
0: shadow trope, right? We have a weird. This feature. is the shadow like, trope. Okay. Yep. Yeah. This is
1: this book's <laughs> shadow trope for <laughs> sure. Yeah. It's so
0: funny because I I meant to text you saying, well, we've got the shadow trope, but um, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't in my notes or yours. So it was just it was just. Oh well, man! All of our fans are going to be so disappointed that we're not we're not <laughs> that we did shadow out trope. <laughs>
1: Yeah, this is definitely this book's shadow trope. And uh, I'm looking forward to the payoff of this in book three. I know it's just kind of set up here. Um, but I feel like this, for me anyway, was one of the more memorable shadow tropes outside of like Shadow himself. <laughs> well, in chapter 22, while Gray Patch plots to enter the Abbey via mu- a multi pronged assault. Mother Mellis and Simeon coach the Abbey Young on the importance of following orders for safety. Mariel and company are led to the western swamplands by Stonehead and left to continue their journey alone. Some of the long patrol return to Salamondastron to find it deserted, their leader having gone into a dangerous blood wrath. Out on the coast, they discover over 100 dead in the aftermath of Ron Blade's crazed assault. Ron Blade himself rests from the battle on the very deck of the Waveblade. I have so
0: much to say about
1: <laughs> this blood wrath,
0: but we're this is going to probably be the the biggest discussion we have. So I think we should save it, savor it a little bit to talk about it, and let's get through the most boring housekeeping. That's
1: the, the front <laughs> half of this chapter. It's funny because I feel like I don't actually hate the the redwall stuff. To be honest, I find Redwall to be and the siege of Redwall by Grey Patch to be the most invested I've been in a siege on Redwall since Clooney. Um I I really enjoy Grey Patch's various tactics and kind of comparing them to how Clooney kind of uh comes about it. And I think too um I I just like the different kind of secondary characters and how they deal with uh this kind of coming conflict. And even though the actual conflict doesn't occur in this chapter, I felt like I was really ready to just read forward to get to more of the siege on Redwall because I find it really interesting. Meanwhile, we cut back to, to Mariel and the Swamplands, and I'm just kind of like, okay, m- more sightseeing, I guess. And it it didn't quite catch my attention quite like the other two things that I think this book kind of sandwiches no i
0: i totally understand what you're saying and where you're coming from and i i agree i think that the red wall shenanigans and what's going on at the abbey is way more interesting than in madameo with general Ironbeak. i thought i didn't if you listen to our review you'll know that i thought that that was pretty boring i did not really like that whole story arc so i agree this is a lot more interesting and it has to do with the kind of uh the conflict that's between gray patch and big fang and kind of the what's going on there but the reason why i dislike this so much this part is the labor it takes to read this chapter and understand what they're saying and then just learning (laughs) that it literally does nothing to forward the the plot oh man it was (laughs) exhausting this this whole paragraph i'm looking at it now this whole paragraph of the what's going on the red wall and the discussion about why the youngins should behave and do what they're supposed to do is all uh otter speak and mole speak (laughs) (laughs) it's incredibly hard to read
1: i don't maybe it's just me and my experience with this stuff but i find mole speak and otter speak and uh hedgehog speak to be just like the most charming thing. I don't know what it is. Every time I read it, I'm like, this is great. I absolutely love this. And I have no problem just immediately falling into that voice and and reading it with a fluency that I think is a real tribute to Jake's craft.
0: Yeah, I've said this on the podcast before. I'm a dumb, dumb reader. So sometimes (laughs) my criticisms more have to do with, you know, me trying to read words on a page than it has to do with Jake's writing. Uh, So your experience may vary, but there was a point when I was reading this chapter where I put the book down and I I thought to myself, I didn't say it audibly, but I thought to myself, (laughs) I think I know why I didn't read these when I was a kid, just because. Of how hard it is to try to read this oh my gosh i it's it's a labor i have to like do the whole theater of the mind and try to like act like i'm speaking it out to have it make any sense
1: i do read every single one of these character dialogues in a distinctive voice and i will say i have a very peculiar sense of like mole speak and what mole speak sounds like in my head and and it's always this they all sound the same it's it's just like maybe variations in pitches of the same voice and it's like a really bass voice and and just like a country bumpkin voice but like even the children speak in that same (laughs) bass voice to my head so
0: yeah the veteran listeners of this podcast will know that in season two when we did our review episode of moss flower you gave us some some reading in mole speech and it was beautiful <laughs> i should clip that and keep it on hand but uh we all know that you love the mole speak but trevor you're 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 the big brains you're smart i'm, I'm a dumb dumb reader.
1: I won't lie. It could also be because I spend so much of my time reading ancient literature, like really old. So I'm I'm very accustomed to like the rhythm of different, you know, variations of English, um, especially like old English I've, uh, and middle yeah, English. Yeah. I've read enough of this stuff that there's just like kind of an automatic translation that happens in my head. And I don't have to think about it too hard. I I remember... <laughs> Um, I really wanted to read a lot of classics from high school because I I
0: feel like I was a really bad reader in high school and I was like, I'd really like to revisit some of these classics like The Great Gatsby. And and so I picked up Beowulf and I don't know if you remember this. I was like, I'm going to read Beowulf. And then I texted me. I was like, I don't know how to read Beowulf. I'm going to (laughs) be. This is really hard. So.
1: And I've, I've probably read like three or four different translations of Beowulf. And uh, no, I feel like I know it backward and forward. I actually cut Beowulf out of my uh, world literature curriculum because I was like, everybody has read this in high school. And I'm tired of <laughs> I'm tired of talking about Beowulf. Well, I kept read, reading it,
0: hoping that Angelina Jolie would show up and she never did. I was like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not quite. All right, now we've we've you know teased it enough. We gotta talk about the blood wrath because this I think this might be one of my favorite things from this book so far.
1: This is okay. So, <laughs> the blood wrath is so amazing because I think we get a real name for this kind of like berserker energy. Um, that that is like this is this is the real lore expansion of this book outside of the bell i think um we certainly get a lot more of like kind of the badger uh prophecy elements in this book but uh, the blood wrath is so fascinating to me and i think that what i love about it especially is that retroactively we can start looking at characters who had the blood wrath but maybe didn't have the terminology for it and one of those characters is Matthias from Madame yeah. We've seen this behavior before. And I, I just think this is the coolest little bit of like weird uh, red wall magic um, is this, this, you know, concept of just like a blackout berserker.
0: Yeah, and we see it with Orlando too, don't we? When uh, both yes, the and Orlando are, are in Malchris, we see this similar thing kind of happen. And I I love that you bring it up because it it retroactively gives a lot more um, credence, I guess, to some of these mm-hmm. past fights, and um, especially Deboer the fight the fighter. But now we have a name for it, exactly what it is. And I kind of want to go back and re- reread parts of. Um, Mossflower and Matameo in order to pick up on this. And I'm so excited to read more about this going forward. Cause I agree. It's such a unique attribute that brings so much more to, um, the badgers in a kind of soft magic kind of way. Right. Cause they don't really explain yeah. what, what it is, but it's to the point where, I mean, um, uh, it's to the point where Ron blade completely like
1: disassociates and just starts murdering (laughs) yeah (laughs) which is just absolutely crazy and 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 what's what's even more cool is like the long patrol know exactly what it is and they can tell the the signs of it Mm -hmm. based on the gouges that ron blade's claws leave in the rock of salamandastron as he's traveling through it they they recognize like, oh boy, uh, something happened here and I hope he's snapped out of it because they also realize that when in the blood wrath, they're not going to be able to take him out of it until it just leaves his body.
0: Yeah, which is it, it, it it's insane. It's just it's absolutely insane. I was kind of shook by how Jake's writes this, too, because we have this lone sea rat survivor who's giving his final breaths talking about this extermination that happened on the beach honestly (laughs) this is the second (laughs) time we've seen this happen too we saw this happen with boar Mm -hmm.
1: even Ah. more like when he talks about what ron blade did he basically says ron Blade just like apparently sat in the ocean for a bit of time and then as soon as as soon as it, was, as it was opportune, he just jumps out of the ocean and starts killing people left and right. He's just a, a machine. They see him as this, this mechanism of war and have no idea how to deal with it. He kills every single one of them.
0: Yeah, the last line in this chapter was was really chilling for me. And it, this is kind of my pitch to anyone who's, who's saying, oh, A red wall is like a kid's book, but I would say this is a very beautiful line from from Jake's. I think he's I think he's kind of telling a little bit of story of this line. It says the awful blood wrath had left him. He knew not when it would visit him again. He slept on as peaceful sorry, as peaceful as any infant at its mother's side. That's kind of a chilling like you just murdered a whole bunch of rats, dude. Like and he's sleeping like a baby. I have so I I think I (laughs) maxed out my word count on all the notes that I have that I want to talk with the rest of the group. So we can't dive in super deep in this episode. Look forward to our review episode where we're Mm going to talk way more about this man. This has me absolutely hyped for this series.
1: I (laughs) I I love this chapter i love the inclusion of ron blade here again i i know exactly how i would shoot these scenes and uh it it would just be like (laughs) uh in the middle of this rat's speech it would be just cuts to to the hyper violence (laughs) that we know he's just committed because it's not even just like these rats are are just dead i mean they're in pieces all over the place the beach running red with their blood yeah no it 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 is such an incredibly cool idea and uh just such a a powerful hook i think for what we're gonna see from ron blade yeah absolutely
0: all right uh trevor you want to take us through chapter 23 Sure.
1: Greypatch wages war against the Abbey with a multi-pronged assault. Efforts to set fire to Redwall's gates fail. And when Formal and others keep snuffing out the fires, Greypatch has to evaluate his plans. Saxtus learns the meaning of war after he kills his first living creature. Meanwhile, some of the Dibbons escape from the dormitory and, without deb- deliberation, begin severing the grappling hooks of vermin trying to scale the east walls. As Grey Patch suffers significant losses, he resorts to threatening captives in order to retreat, though Redwall resolves never to fold.
0: So one of the things that stuck out to me in this chapter, I think this is a really good siege fight. We really haven't had one for like a few books now, but this was very reminiscent of the first book in the series, Redwall. And it made me realize, man, the Abbey has been under a lot of duress. I mean, the front (laughs) gates have been attempted to be burned. The walls have been scaled multiple times by invaders. Like this helps to grow the history of the Abbey as mm. a place of defense, right? So I thought that this yeah. was actually really cool. I am not a big bag and run fan or uh, what are they called? Bag and yes. bag and run. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm not a huge fan of them, but I did find this pretty funny that they grab the good vegetable knives. They run out and they start slicing all of the, the ropes with the grapples. And uh, the first thing that comes to um, uh, I forgot who the abbot is. Man, I need to like track these characters way better. <laughs> friar alder i think it's funny that his biggest concern is that his prize vegetable cutting knives are are getting all chipped up <laughs> from <laughs> these invaders uh it was it was a very comical uh uh section or it was it was it was comical to me
1: i like how quickly uh gray patch is crew just like leaps into the war crimes um cuz it, it it's like using fire as we know in redwall or in mossflower is like a no go right they like it's an understood uh understood crime to use fire against anyone um so you know gray patch just immediately turns to fire mostly at the, the behest of big fang but he uses it as a diversionary tactic in order to try to scale the walls. And in this, I think he's most like Clooney because uh, Clooney had very similar ideas for how to get into Redwall. I loved this scene though. I loved the Dibbons breaking out of the dormitory to go off to march to war. And I love that they just start chopping off the, <laughs> the grappling hooks and collecting them one by one. Like it's a game. Um, that was just uh, absolutely hilarious to me, but it's also weighed pretty heavily by Saxtus. Saxtus. Yeah. And, and his uh, interactions, you know, he kills, he kills a rat, but he throws a a spear, I think at gray patch and gray patch ducks it. And the, the, yeah, spears the rat behind him. Yeah. Yeah. The rat behind him gets it. And from that moment, saxtus has to kind of like reevaluate who he is you know saxtus is the scholar he's not the warrior like dandon is um and he has to come to a real recognition of like this is war it's not fun and games as much as the Dibbins would have you believe there's real stakes involved well i will say there's something
0: really devious about that too because Sactus saxtus feels the weight of death in this conflict and he even breaks down and it's flag that has to tell him like, Hey, this is what we have to do to f- keep everyone safe. And I do think it's ironic that the people they're quote unquote Ke- keeping safe, the dibbins come up and start killing rats off the wall. Like it's such a <laughs> cornflower moment where cornflower, you know, like, <laughs> lights the entire t- tower on fire it feels so much like that and it seems like he's the only one that's really grounded uh, in mm. like you know the gravity of what warfare is yeah um, i wonder how I, kids would take this honestly like i kind of would w- be curious to see like if any young mm. readers that read this felt that with this, like, you know, are we, are we the baddies? Should we be <laughs> doing this? Uh, but then Jake's quickly swift, you know, swiftly kind of turns it around with a comedy with, yeah. with the Divins.
1: I, th- I do think that if this were pitched more for an adult audience, than you know, kind of a middle grade audience, I do feel like sex. This is crisis would probably be more, drawn out and probably weigh a lot more heavily over the, the course of the book. I could totally see a world in which this book is kind of rewritten with some of that theme in mind. But I I still give Jake's a lot of credit for even bringing it up in the first place. I think that it right, yeah. it is a, a really interesting conversation to kind of pose. And it also gives him a little bit of a defensible position where it's like, how do you justify how much violence are in these books? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, sometimes violence has to be done to protect the things that you love the most. Yeah, I kind of wondered
0: if he did this as some kind of defensible writing too. Um like what you mm-hmm. said, so that if an angry parent does come and say like, you know, it's uh, that would be me, I'd be the angry parent saying like, <laughs> I can't believe all the violence in this book. And be like, you know, well, it's weird read what Saxon said and Um, It's so funny because I didn't have this in my notes, but I do remember reading this and feeling like, oh, dang, this, this took a very somber moment for a second. Um, And then I just went back to giggling and
1: laughing about the garden vegetables (laughs) or the garden (laughs) hives cutting down the ropes." Yeah, I feel like this is, again, one of those things that Jake's does that I just love in his storytelling. Uh one of the texts that I do like to teach in my world literature class is the Mahabharata and um, the Bhagavad Gita, both of which are ancient Indian texts. And that text is really all about trying to figure out one's dharma, like one's obligation to the world. And at the center of the Bhagavad Gita is this question of like, is there such a form of defensible violence, right? If if violence is kind of against um, the gods in some way, you know, if it's against uh, uh, moral code, then how do we justify violence in times of war? And it presents this pretty deep uh, philosophical question um, that, of course, goes on for much longer because it's a it's an ancient text and it its audience was quite different, but Jake still deals with some of these classical ideas, these classical philosophies in a way that I think, um, at least for me as a younger reader, really connected and resonated for me and opened up a chance for discovery with stuff like classical texts that I would then encounter a little bit later in life. Well, in chapter 24, Mariel encounters her first dangers of the bog, nearly outwitted by a lumpy toad in a bog. Even in spite of their efforts to subdue the toad, Danden falls into the muck of the swamplands, nearly drowning. Mariel manages to save him, though, at the swift bidding of the spirit of Martin. As they draw further into the bog, they are followed by a great horde of lizards, though the lizards provide little harassment. At the edge of the bog, Mariel and company bid farewell to the strange lizard inhabitants and set their eyes on the rest of their journey to Terramort. The forest is getting weird, man. It's getting pretty strange. This is the strange forest right here. I, I was trying to
0: see. I don't think the the toad has a name, right? We don't really no I, I don't think so. A nameless Toad. He um, just kind of shows up. <laughs> like an ogre, right? You just yeah, you're in my swamp. Yeah. So with this chapter, the thing that stood out the most to me, and I think I mean we have to talk about it, it's Martin, right? Martin appearing mm-hmm. in this forest to kind of help um Danden out of this pit. I got to say, this is just not a, a shining moment for Danden. This seemed so silly. He, you know, goes to fight this toad and then um, accidentally just stumbles into the swamp, right? Like he just like kind of falls into the pit and they they hatch this plan to get him out using Gullwhacker to kind of uh, lower down from the tree and then be able to get him out. Um, and he's told to keep his hands above the swamp You know, so that he could reach it and she's told to lower down and we're we're supposed to believe that this is the ghost of Martin. I have so many questions. This opens up this tears apart my entire theory about the tapestry. Like it's it was in shambles earlier in this book, but this absolutely tears it apart. So I'm coming at you with a new theory. Are you ready for it? (laughs) I am. I think that his sword is the embodiment, not the tapestry. So the sword was in, the temp- was in his tomb in Redwall, so that still fits. And here the sword is with them in the forest, and so I think the spirit is with them because the, spirit, the, the magic of Martin's um, uh, spirit is tied to the sword. That's my new theory.
1: I think that's possible. Um, I tend to treat Martin's ghost like Obi-Wan Kenobi, where he just kind of shows up to the people who best embody whatever it is that's going on in the moment. Um, I do find it interesting, again, like Danden falls into this swamp and Martin doesn't go to tell Danden what to do. Martin appears to Mariel of Redwall. Um, Or rather, she's not Mariel of Redwall yet, but he appears to Mariel and instructs her on what to do. And this is kind of the second time that, that Martin shows up and tells someone what to do, and it's not Danden. He seems to be pretty studiously not talking to Danden, um, which I, I don't know how to take. I feel like it's a weird thing that he always shows up and seems to talk to the ones who best embody the spirit of Redwall, and that's never Danden, in spite of the fact that Danden's carrying around his sword. No, he does talk to Danden because at the very end he says,
0: I, the same one who told me to hold my paws up straight after I went under, good old Martin the Warrior.
1: Oh, okay. So well, the theory never is. Mind. That I take
0: it back. He, he kind of talks both. Of, but I agree. I, I want to be on this train of. I, I, we're going to talk about it more, but Danden is just not doing it He's for me. Boring. He's still boring. He is very boring. And I misspoke. He does reach out to try to grab the toad after subduing him and yeah. grab onto the leg. The toad and just kicks of, him like, off into yeah, the bog kind of like falls with the, with that. So, um it's funny I don't really have any notes on this except that my theory's in ruins. I just I yeah, have to come yeah. up with something
1: new. I'm going to pitch I it did, to the rest of the group and see what they think. I did like the lizard uh the the lizard creatures that show up. Um not because they they don't do a thing. Like, I don't even know why the lizards are there, except that it provides this really great comedic support for Tark, uh, where he just brains one of them <laughs> in the head with his instrument. And then yeah, he's and they're like, all kind of like, what the why heck, are these man? guys following us?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's also kind of lame that um, we get to see Mariel brandish Martin's sword too, and nothing happens mm-hmm. with it. Yep. She does the the direct challenge saying, Hey, uh salamanders, why don't we have a show off? Um, or lizards or whatever they are. I want to fight your chief. And then they don't respond and she's like, Well, I guess that's not gonna work. Let's just get on our way. And to me, that is such a disappointing moment because it's the the moment for her to shine, you know, like mm-hmm. Um, you, I think you said this, maybe you said it off mic, but it, you know, the, the big criticism for this book is why can't they just give Mario the sword? Why yep. does she, you know, she has goal whacker, which in a lot of ways might be more dangerous than Martin's sword, especially Danden's hands. I mean, <laughs> he's not doing anything with that sword, but I think that, uh, if, if she was to be
1: the one with the sword, I think this would be way more interesting than it is. Yeah, I agree um yeah as far as the chapter goes overall my my lasting thoughts are just i don't know i'm so kind of blah about mariel's travels i i really just don't have much enthusiasm for it well in chapter 25 gray patch comes up with a new method of terrorizing the abbey using fire swingers to launch flaming missiles into the sky. The new ploy proves to be effective, placing the attackers out of range of the defenders' weaponry, while simultaneously wreaking havoc within. Having moved the Dibbons inside, Abbey dwellers struggle to keep up with the random attacks from fire swingers, but discover some new hope at their wicker gate. Colonel Clary and his long patrol have arrived at Redwall.
0: Okay, so I think this is actually pretty cool. Um, I, I like that they come up with this idea to basically throw these um, hot oil lanterns, right? That's basically what they are, into the abbey from afar. And it's funny because Graypatch has to do this kind of uh, convincing of the crew to do that because they're so demoralized from their last battle. And he's like, "Hey, I think we can do this. I think we can get in there and do it." And then we have this great standoff. I think it's between Flag and mm-hmm. the 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 uh, Gray Patches group, where he's Jakes is describing how um, strong Flag is to be able to shoot the arrow and throw a spear, and nothing hits. And to me, this was a moment where it was like kind of a subversion of how Jakes typically writes these things because he he'll kind of set this up and then there's a payoff from it so it's like you know he's very strong and that's why this may made its mark but in this it's like you know he's very strong and he wasn't Mm -hmm. able to do anything either so i really liked this i thought that this was a pretty clever way um to introduce some tension into what's going on with redwall and the only response that they have it and this is not a very great response. I I'd love to hear your thoughts on it is to just quickly establish like a firefighting crew to just go out and smother the fires like it's yeah. such a defensive and vulnerable response to what's going on. And it just haggers the whole group because they're having to run around the whole abbey and try to put these fires out.
1: <clears throat> yeah, this is one of the things that I remembered the most about this book um ironically i actually thought that this whole sequence as i've been reading it occurred in an earlier book i had sworn for a long time that this scene was in redwall and oh it, wow it's, it's not um it I remember it distinctly because I know what the long patrol is going to do in in a future chapter that I thought was one of the coolest things I've ever really encountered with the long patrol and its relationship to Redwall. Um, We'll bring it up in book three when we get to it. But I loved this whole the the whole consequence of this battle and and again relying back on that idea that using fire in this conflict is a war crime yeah it It really highlights this kind of scorched earth policy of gray patch where it's it's like who cares what we destroy to get in there right it's all about just the wanton destruction at this point that's what's going to move the needle for us um
0: and it's it's legitimate
1: joy in it too i mean they're sitting around lighting these and throwing
0: up and like watching them like fireworks and they're they're super casual about it they're you know relaxing as they're doing it um yeah this is uh you're now that you've kind of said it and i'm thinking about it more this might be one of my
1: favorite Redwall. uh like it's it's up there for me (laughs) it really is up there for me i feel like um again we're we'll revisit it when we get to book three we'll revisit it in our big you know kind of round discussion um but it's this book has always been kind of polarizing to me with regards to like it's cool elements are so cool (laughs) i love it so much and then the elements that i find most formulaic i find the least interesting yeah agreed well in our last chapter of book 2 chapter 26 mariel and company come across an old dormouse named babo at the edge of the swamp and he shows the party a great deal of hospitality babo reveals that he is a former or slave of gabool and mariel makes or takes great interest in his story. After they talk through the night, Babo explains to Mariel that he might know the last portion of Mariel's travel riddle, and shows her to a golden swallow submerged under a pool of water nearby, but it is jealously guarded by a blue-tailed lobster. Mariel puts together a gambit to distract the lobster while she and Danden make a dive for the mysterious treasure that could hold the key to their next leg of the journey now
0: this is a cliffhanger i really enjoyed this chapter a lot uh first i think bobo's great (laughs) i really like bobo (laughs) immediately i got bilbo vibes from him you know Mm. he's secluded he's um you know has a stocked pantry he has this little companion, Furl, who we learn is a salamander, right? Or a lizard yeah. uh, that he kind of took under his wing and they lived in this hole together. But then the, something really emotional happens in this chapter where everyone's exhausted from their travels. They all just want to go to sleep. And Mariel seizes the opportunity to share her story with Bobo. And we learn more about Bobo, too. And his mm-hmm. tale is tragic
1: his yes. tale
0: is i think this might be the most most emotional story we've we've heard in in redwall so far so he's tied to a another uh or slave um who i believe is is it a dormouse or is he a uh, a vole i believe it's an. In- uh, it's a bowl, a bowl. Yeah. yeah. And they get tossed overboard and it's only because of his friend's corpse that gets wedged in a rock that he's able to survive some pretty torrent. Um, uh, a, a pretty, some pretty bad. Um, I said torrents, but I think a torrent is a thing, right? It's like a running yeah. river. Okay. Uh, he's able to survive these river torrents because of, um, being shackled to this dead vole and it's because of his death that he Bobo's able to, to live. And that to me is like, I can't even imagine something like that happening, you know, like the emotional toll that that would take, but then also the deep, um, gratitude that Bobo has for this unnamed companion um is really there's I don't know I don't know I, I don't know how to describe it. it there's something so like um beautifully tragic about it
1: that just really yeah. stood out to me in this chapter I think this is my favorite chapter of mariel's travels for sure and and it is because of babo um it, it gives Mariel i think a kind of softening moment uh element where she builds a real connection to babo over the fact that they were both enslaved to gabool and i really uh, f- just find a lot of um compassion i think for for babo for the same reason that you mention but i also find that um i find a lot more sympathy for mariel as well because mariel specifically um has a such a similar experience to Babo. And she spends the whole night talking to him. She spends the whole night kind of galvanizing her feelings against Gabul and also learning more about Gabul's history, uh, interrogating Babo as to like, you know, what was Gabool like when you knew him. Um, almost like she's trying to suss out what is it gonna be. That will be Gabool's kind of critical weakness when I come to find him later. Yeah, I I, I do think that that's really interesting. You're right that this is a
0: softening as her as a character, but um, man, I, I, I I'm th- it was very emotional reading this. I I'm even reading back and a beautiful line that he says is, um, he's talking about his friend. The vole lies buried on the green hillside. I think he would have liked that, is what he says. And I think yeah. that that's such a powerful thing. Like he's, ah, uh, man, I can't wait to talk about this with, uh, Tiffin William, because I think that this is going to be a big part of our review session of like what Jake's is doing in this book. But this was the, one of the best, uh, closings that we've had to a book. Mm-hmm. Um, in a while, I think <laughs> I we talked about our criticism the last one, but man, this one was pretty powerful. I liked it a lot.
1: When we talk about her, at least when I talk about how many moments of this book, I, I think stand out with a kind of cinematic imagination, um, evocative of of Jake's prose um, and kind of his ideas for shaping a scene this was one of those that i felt again i would put this in my film version you know like i would put this yeah the scene on the beach the talking with babo babo's regret and his admiration for how he survived gabool and i think the deepening of of mariel's resolve to go after gabool on account of babo's experience like all of this comes together for me thematically and cinematically in a way i find deeply satisfying um and in a way that i find the rest of Marielle's journey to be so dissatisfying Yeah. oh man. it doesn't deliver this same kind of of emotive energy
0: yeah, I would have I would have rather spent so much more time with Bobbo than with the Toads or with with uh, Stone Cold Stonehead McGurney, you know, like <laughs> I, there would have just been so much like and maybe this is because we're, you know, older and not necessarily the audience that Jakes was going for. But um, I find it incredibly uh, rewarding and I have to commend Jakes for. Being able to write like this like it's very powerful and i i just um yeah got a lot of feelings about this one got a lot of feelings yeah
1: yeah i totally agree well that brings book two the strange forest to a close we've got a couple of uh, memorable characters to talk about <laughs> we didn't get a whole lot of new characters in this book two uh we got stonehead mcgurney we got babo we got furl and of course there's an expansion of the roles of many other characters like flag or uh, saxtus or uh, bag and run who for you makes for the most memorable character of book two it's gotta be Bobo man. I
0: mean, I just spent all this time gushing about it. It's definitely Bobbo. Bobo. His story, like you just had mentioned, it's, it enriches so much of Mariel's quest and, um, his character. I think his character is going to be one that really stands out for me over time. We'll see, you know, in 10 podcasts from now, if I forget his name and have to have the bot say it, <laughs> we'll know that this <laughs> was a lie, but, um, in the moment reading this chapter, um, it was it was definitely the one that drew the most emotion. So uh,
1: excuse me, uh, Babo for me. I agree. I, Babo all the way. As soon as I saw his name was Bobo, I knew he would be the character. Um, and then as soon as we got into his backstory, I was like, this is incredible. I mean, a, a total knock out of the park with a side character, a side character of yeah. all of all things to add to this book. Um, I feel like Jake's just got it. He got it right with this one.
0: Yeah, this is totally off the cuff, but this gives me really big Count of Monte Cristo vibes, his his story. Ooh, and,
1: uh, yeah. You know, like there there's yeah. something
0: about it that feels very like, I don't know, classical, but also really draws to the humanity and the gratitude. But then like vengeance at the same time, like he's thankful, but then he's bitter and bittered about it. And
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm i glad you bring up Count of Monte Cristo because um, there's definitely a lot of vibes that seem to be woven into this whole book <laughs> that ties into that same Ooh, idea.
0: Okay, yeah, I like that. I like that ex- expansion. Maybe we should uh, look at some comparisons in our review.
1: Yeah, well... On the vermin side of things, we got a couple of new or new-ish characters like Big Fang, Kaibo, and Flitch-Eye, amongst some other returners. What do you think? What what stood out for you in book two on the vermin side? Ugh, I hate all these vermin in this one. I really do. <laughs> There's not a really good
0: standout. If any, I would say it's Flitch-Eye. Um because of the the kind of mystique that's wrapped around them at the very beginning, the flitch Eye, um club or whatever they call themselves the tribe um that would be the standout to me um who what's the one that we mentioned the shadow trope that we already forgot
1: by the time we got to the end of this episode uh sc- sc- scoblag or something yeah that oh, would That would make the list,
0: except that everyone would know I'm lying about it because I've already forgotten about the (laughs) names. Well, to To be fair, it
1: it showed up in one chapter and has not yet played its role in the yeah. In a paragraph, yeah, we're gonna have to save that for another list then. So yeah, it's it's Um, it's definitely saved for book three. What about you? I don't know, man. I I I kind of feel a little bit the same way. I I kind of like Big Fang. I think he's. An interesting, kind of dumb brute character. Um I I like his little rivalry with Grey Patch. I feel like again, this is the sort of thing that I really dig in Grey Patch's story. It makes him such a great little secondary villain. Um and I think he he actually like Big Fang actually seems to give a lot more depth to Grey Patch. Um, in the same way that I think Grey Patch gives depth to Gabul and Gabool's story. Um, so I want to say that you know, I really enjoy Big Fang. Um, I I probably agree with you though. I feel like the flitch eye add kind of a, a weird mystique to the rest of Mossflower. Yeah. That I wouldn't mind returning to. Like I wouldn't mind if in a later book we get another encounter with the flitch eye somewhere um but i also can't say that i'm like gonna put the flitch eye on my my vision board you know (laughs) (laughs) your future book vision board
0: i don't know man i kind of miss the the weird horror aspect that we got in madameo i I
1: really loved the painted ones (laughs) it was so incredible yeah yeah, and Malchus, and there's
0: just a lot in that. Uh, go back and listen to our review episode where we talk about all the creepy things, and we have oh. a very mixed opinion as a panel about the <laughs> creepiness of that. So,
1: Yeah, I man, <laughs> it's sad because I think in any other time, I probably would look at the Flitch Eye and think they were pretty fun, uh, but because I compare... This book to Madameo, I'm just like man, Madameo got everything right for me. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Well, that wraps it up for
0: book two, the Strange Forest. You know, it's funny for this being called the Strange Forest. I feel like we don't actually spend much time in that forest, but well, you <laughs> no, know, a few like chapters, yeah. Strange things definitely happened. Uh but uh I and I can't believe that we might be under time on this. Uh so it's pretty a new record for the Books and Badgers crew for sure. Uh, well if you got this far thank you so much for listening if you want to p- support the show the best way you could do that is to leave us a review um, just wherever you're, you're listening to this podcast leave a review give us a star or five stars if you're feeling generous and that just really helps Rick. us <laughs> that helps us to become more visible in the godforsaken algorithm that is trying to get people to listen to this show uh, so we really appreciate that uh, you can also follow us on instagram and threads at books and badgers um, with, that's with an n in between uh, you can also email us and you questions that you may have at books and at gmail.com uh, i'm trying to be more active on the social media but i am also trying to have a healthy interaction with social media so um, i kind of jump in there and i'll do some polls and stuff so we'd love to interact with you more but if we're also silent know that we're working you know behind the scenes uh we just got family and stuff that we're working with so um messages feel free to message us there too uh, and then lastly, uh, if you love our voices, particularly Trevor's voice, you can always check them out at Slate House Presents. We say this every episode, but I look at your episodes that are coming out from Slate House Presents, and I'm always thinking, how the heck do you get these people to uh these incredible
1: authors to come on your show um i mean they they the crazy thing is they are listening to the show like they don't just uh, agree to do it you know like completely cold um which is even more surreal is that i've had people come on the show and tell me to my face that they enjoy listening to it um (laughs) but i've got i've got like just kind of crazy Crazy stuff in the future. I've got um, episodes with Emily Ruth Verona coming out. She was just featured in New York Times. That's (laughs) Um, crazy. It's wild. I've got uh, Robert O'Tone coming through. He just won a a Stoker Award last year. I've got another Stoker Award winner, Gwendolyn Keist, on the the future horizon. I've got uh, Essie Porter, who's got a magnificent. Fantasy novel coming out from Tor uh, pretty soon. I've got LP Hernandez coming through to talk about in the Valley of the Headless Men. Just, I mean, amazing, amazing writers. I'm so privileged to get the opportunity to talk to them. Yeah, and that's what I was gonna say. Like, I see all these
0: incredible authors coming on the show of my, you know, with my brother, and I'm like, do you know my brother? <laughs> like, do you know? Like- <laughs> what i know you know it's it's so amazing the connection that you've been able to build with these authors and it's incredible to see the the authors coming on the show and and then i i end up following a lot of them on social media just kind of see what they're doing and i'm always astonished at just the the um the incredible things that they're doing and just the accolades that they're getting and i'm like whoa dang that that person was on the show so um super cool you got to check it out there Uh, my 2023 prediction is that Slayhouse Presents is gonna be the place for horror. So if you want to get in on that somewhat early, I know you've been, you're getting close to your year, right? I'm sorry, you're getting close to your 100th episode,
1: right? Yeah, in fact, the 100th episode is coming out on uh, Tuesday, January 30th, and it is my interview with Emily Ruth Verona. So, that is super cool yeah so check
0: that out that's that's a great way to get um some really great authors on your you know tbr to to get that list growing so all right well thank you guys so much for this time and uh, we'll see you in book three which is called the sound of a bell the sound of a bell can't wait thanks all